Hello, I'm Dr. Rebecca Sun, Director of the Peregrine Centre. As we begin this episode of the Peregrine Rural Mental Health Podcast, please join me in stopping to consider the land beneath your feet, wherever you might be listening from today. Let's take a moment together to acknowledge the traditional owners of that land. We pay our deepest respects to the elders of the past, those of the present, and the emerging elders of tomorrow. The Peregrine Rural Mental Health Podcast is brought to you as part of our Rural Mental Health Partnership with New South Wales Health. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Peregrine Rural Mental Health Podcast. My name is Caitlin Miller. I am a research associate and clinical psychologist working for the Rural Mental Health Partnership at the Peregrine Centre. Today, we are talking about telehealth and digital mental health interventions. I'm very lucky to be joined by Julia Reynolds and Ross Jacobs. Thanks so much to you both for being here today. I'm really excited to talk about this topic. Uh, Julia, I might start with you. Would you be able to introduce yourself uh, to the audience and tell us a little bit about yourself and your work background? I'm a clinical psychologist uh, by background and I've worked, uh, had a fairly traditional career up until about 10 years ago uh, when I moved to Canberra. So uh, prior to coming to Canberra, I worked in a range of public sector and private practice type settings, both in Australia and the UK. Uh, Then I joined a research team at ANU working on digital mental health uh, projects, including things like Mood Gym. Uh, And since then, I've joined the psychology department uh, where I uh, have set up an e-therapy clinic that reaches into rural and uh, regional areas that's student-led, so it's part of our training program. And I've also been working to set up a, a 5 plus 1 program as well. Fantastic. Thank you. It sounds like you will have lots of experience to share with us today. Uh, Ross, would you be able to introduce yourself to us? Yeah, happy to, Caitlin, and good morning, Julia. Uh, My name's Ross. I'm the clinical implementation lead for Origin Digital up here in New South Wales. And uh, Origin is an organisation that people might have heard of before, big players in mental health down in Victoria. Uh, And we're now cutting through uh, doing some digital offerings up here in New South Wales. So uh, prior to Origin, I uh, worked at an organisation called Canteen that you've probably heard of. And prior to that, uh, where I started with digital and distance interventions was at QLife, which is an LGBTQ um, version of Lifeline, effectively. So, uh, like Julia, about 10 years ago, my career got quite diverted into this idea of digital service provision. And I think that it's just an exciting time for everyone post-COVID to get to grips with the idea that the sector itself has changed Mm. to accommodate uh, some of what people now expect when it comes to service provision. So I'm really looking forward to today's conversation. Fantastic. And Russ, can you remind me what your training background is? I think you've been collecting a few along the way. (laughs) I have. Uh, I started out uh, with a psych undergrad, uh, wandered through to a post-grad qualification in counselling and finally landed in social work where uh, I'm now a professionally registered supervisor uh, there Uh, and more and more I'm um, sort of doing things to help face-to-face practitioners um, really upskill when it comes to digital service provision and doing supervision in that space and things like that. Wonderful. Fantastic. Okay. So, I think uh, that our listeners probably don't need an introduction into what telehealth or digital mental health is. Um, So, we might just dive in. Um, Our first question for today is, what are some of the common myths that people might have about telehealth in mental health? Probably one of the 
most common ones I hear is uh, that it's not possible to develop an effective therapeutic relationship. And I think that from the research, we know that the therapeutic alliance overall is, is quite similar in quality. Uh, therapists, especially when they're not that experienced with telehealth, tend to rate it a bit lower than clients do. And in some comparisons, I guess, it can be better. It's been found to be better than the face-to-face comparison or sometimes worse. Um, but overall, it's very similar. I think what's one of the things that's really interesting to me is that um, when it is perhaps lower than face-to-face, it doesn't seem to have the same impact on outcome that it would in a face-to-face outcome research. And we don't really know why that is. Uh, Some people uh, think that it could be around the greater agency and uh, co-creation that needs to occur in a telehealth space that maybe for clients that offsets any reduction in uh, the therapeutic alliance. Great. And are there any other major myths? That's certainly something that I've come across as a question or a a preconceived notion about telehealth. Are there any others that you think are um, quite prolific? Yes, I think um, one is that it's just a weak uh, imitation of face-to-face therapy. It's something that we do if we can't do face-to-face. I think as you get more experience with it, you realise that it's actually its own form of, of interaction and it has its own advantages and disadvantages. Uh, one of the things I particularly find very exciting and interesting is, uh, as I said before, that it's more of a co-creative space than our traditional therapy. And if you think about it, we haven't really changed our practice since Freud was around. We might not sit behind clients anymore, but we have physical spaces that we furnish and we create and we patrol the boundaries of. We might have a receptionist making sure we're not interrupted, but it's all on our terms. And that has some advantages, uh, but I think the lovely thing about telehealth is both you and the client are responsible, are more responsible together for creating spaces mm. in which to meet. So it's, I, think, I think that has a lot of benefits. Yep. Wonderful. Ross, do you have anything to add around the myths of telehealth? Look, Julia's taken the words out of my mouth effectively. <laughs> um, I would just underline the fact that traditionally in a face-to-face setting, there's a lot of thinking around physical space creation that goes on in setting up your office or how it is that you uh, decide the client will experience your therapy session. And all of that has gone out the window when it comes to digital health and um, distant service provision, but in a good way, I think, Mm. you know, in a way that includes a bit of a rebalancing of power between the therapist and the client. We don't insist that clients cross the city or even the state to come to us when it comes to this kind of intervention because effectively you're both coming from your own spaces and that does something really interesting in that in that dynamic. Mm, okay. That's um, really interesting. I imagine there's some sort of equalising effect that it has. Yeah, and and I think traditionally face-to-face practitioners get a bit nervous about that because in some ways the magic feather of the uh, of the therapy room has been something that we're so used to. We're, we're used to our cushions being in a certain spot or our little water features <laughs> doing their magic thing yeah. and, and we don't have those anymore. Um, but we have something equally interesting, mm. uh, if not more interesting. I think the other thing that's exciting for me too is that um, we're really beginning to think more about some of the process, like we're learning a lot more about that. And I think uh, we know that the relationship is still the most important 
element of the therapy and nothing happens without that. And gradually we're learning, I think, uh, how to deepen that relationship and it might require some more deliberate thought initially until you get used to it. Um, So, for example, there's kind of, uh, I guess, a lot of thought around how we make sure that we're empathically attuned with clients Mm. when we're not able to pick up a lot of the cues that in a room we would pick up without really uh, being conscious of it, a lot of the sort of subconscious non-verbal type of, of uh, interactions that occur. So I think we're learning like how we, how we can do that. And we're also learning that telepresence, like our presence um, in that interaction is really important and ways that we can deepen that. So, yeah, I think it's opening up a whole new areas for exploration about how we actually interact with people. What we often hear, and I've heard this from people who are living in regional and rural communities, as well as people who live in metro communities, um, is that people are reluctant to use telehealth because they speak about the value of face-to-face connections and how this can support the therapeutic relationship. Um, You've mentioned already that there is research that the therapeutic relationship is still really important and there are ways that we can establish that. I'm wondering how can practitioners use telehealth in a way that builds that trust and connection and rapport? I think that it's very important to accept, first of all, that it doesn't fit everybody. So, again, I think coming back to that real collaboration between yourself and the client, making sure that this is something that they're they're feeling comfortable and open with. In our work, because we are reaching mainly into regional and rural areas, uh, we've done a lot of work with local communities uh, and particularly the GPs uh, that refer to us. So we require GP referrals. And so we get some local triaging. So the uh, people who refer to us are able to talk about the service with people and make sure that it's something that they're, they're, they're interested in. And I think... We've really benefited from uh, the support of local champions and developing local connections. And we worked for about, I think, about a year or so to sort of set a lot of that up before we launched our clinic. Now, that was before COVID, so perhaps things are a little easier now. But I think it's really important to have those local champions and, and to work in a team so that our clients have their local GP and perhaps some other support systems in place and we make sure that those are either extended or sort of maintained. So we're there for a particular reason uh, and we're not necessarily going to be there forever, but we very much work with the support of local teams. We've also, um, when we started, so we launched our clinic just before the bushfires and then COVID. (laughs) So originally we wanted to provide um, a hybrid model and that's still our aim where we do some sessions face-to-face, for example, the initial assessments. And so we travel out to those communities and use GP rooms. But that's been quite difficult to maintain with COVID where usually one or the other place is locked down. So it hasn't been so good. Yeah, I think all I'd add to that is for quite a lot of clients, it's not one or the other. It can be blended the way Julie is talking about. And at Origin, we really embrace that idea of not replacing face-to-face Mm. Uh, but enhancing face-to-face uh, with a with an element of digital service provision. But we're also aware that um, distance is a real barrier for a lot of people. And so for some folks, online is their only option. Uh, and in that instance, what I've found over the years is that people don't 
see it as lesser necessarily. They're just grateful for the fact that they're able to access mm. a service in the first place. Mm. I think it's partly why I'm so passionate about digital mental health is that idea that um, there shouldn't be an imbalance between what you can access just because of where you live. So if we're able to offer quality service to folks using technology um, that they could never normally access before, uh, I think that's a win for everyone. Mm. And would you have any specific advice around how practitioners can build a therapeutic rapport when they are using telehealth services? Um, look, in the context of youth service provision particularly, I'd um, encourage practitioners to think about um, being led by the client in terms of how they use technology and what's going to work for them. Um, the truth for young people uh, these days is that Digital is second nature to them. Uh, this is not something that they have to learn how to do. Uh, this is something they're starting to take for granted. And it doesn't hurt for a therapist to ask someone, how would you like to use this? Um, what's going to work for you? Uh, and be really use that as your jumping off point when it comes to meeting and working with clients. Mm, okay. And so I'm hearing that from Julia, it's around having a, a team and having maybe as much as you can, having a local point of contact, uh, but also being really client-led and mm. sort of quite collaborative. And Julia, you mentioned before co-creating a space. Yeah. And I guess we work with older um, groups, uh, sort of adults through to older adults. Mm. And uh, definitely that's the same, very much having the client lead and, and contribute to setting up a space that works for them. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Fantastic. So, when we think about clients, are there any types of clients that you would feel aren't suitable for a telehealth service? Generally, uh, people might be cautious around um, offering online or sort of telehealth to people with very high levels of risk mm. to or from um, themselves or others and uh, people having experience that others don't share, such as people with active psychotic experiences or perhaps very severe dissociation. Just generally people who have very acute needs um, uh, at the time that, that you're offering the service. But I think like every other service that we offer, it's possible to really look at this on a case-to-case -case basis and that's certainly what we would do. Each client is different, their circumstances are different um, and they have different supports in their local areas um, and the therapist has different kind of uh, levels of, of expertise in, in areas. So I think I know people often want a blanket yes or no kind of response to this, uh, but I think we just use our clinical reasoning and our, our assessment that we would use uh, when we're deciding in any other setting, whether somebody's, uh, whether our service is really suitable for, for that person's needs at the time. Ross, anything to add on that one? Look, only um, to mirror again what Julia is saying, but not just that it depends on each individual client. It depends on the nature of the service too. Like there are some digital services I'm aware of that don't have the risk hesitation that I think is quite normal and natural for many other services. And uh, at Origin, at least, we've got a similar triage process that Julie's just described. Like we don't want young people who are acutely at risk to find themselves in a digital setting in a crisis when that setting um, isn't set up for crisis, for mm. instance. So uh, but I'm aware of other uh, agencies out there or, or services, say, for instance, Kids Helpline or things like that, that are definitely there in those crisis instances. So 
it, it depends how services are set up, really, in, in terms of who's appropriate. And uh, the way we describe it at Origin is that um, we really encourage um, referrals to be made once a few face-to-face setting, uh, sessions have happened with young people who are at risk mm-hmm. to contain that risk and then bring them on board uh, a service um, that is digitally provided mm-hmm. Um and the research is really backing up that uh, it can be highly effective for young people in recovery from psychosis or things like that. So um, when they're actively in the instance of risk, that's where things get a lot trickier. And, of course, um, your local sort of uh, crisis services and traditional hospital settings are more appropriate there. Mm-hmm. I think also it's very interesting. It looks as though, again, we need lots of more research on all sorts of things to do with telehealth and digital mental health, but it, it does look as though uh, people who might be at very high risk, for example, around suicidality, um, who wouldn't uh, contact traditional services, may be more likely to access mental health um, online as well. So even where we can't draw people into the kind of traditional services perhaps we'd like to offer, Mm. it may be uh, initial contact or or, or at least a way of providing something uh, to people who might not otherwise Uh, access services. Mm. Which really makes sense, doesn't it, Julie? I mean, when you think about the traditional model, it's an office hours model. It's uh, you've got to access transport to get to services model. Um, when people are going through crisis, it might be at 2 a.m. and they might not have access to a car. So just that idea that all of a sudden via their own devices, people are able to access a form of help, whatever mm. that happens to be. Um, and certainly with our young people, we hear that's super effective when it comes to uh, getting the sort of uh, less severe symptoms under control rather than when people are in full crisis. So um, for young people to really be able to access good mental health support at 2 a.m. when it's not a crisis yet, that's turning out to be really effective. Mm, yeah. Okay, so let's talk about risk assessment. How would your management plan change if you do have a client who is maybe unstable in their risk presentation that you're seeing via telehealth? You know, maybe you've seen them face-to-face initially, uh, but have transitioned to a a telehealth service. What are the sort of contingency strategies that you might put in place if you were using telehealth? I think I'd like to loop back to something that Ross said around being really clear about the service model. And I think that's absolutely critical with uh, whenever you're bringing telehealth into an interaction with a client. Uh, So I think that it's really important to manage risk really throughout from looking at who you're uh, inviting into the service, uh, looking, yeah, just just really building in risk assessment through and management through the triage, uh, through the initial contact, the information that the client has. Um, The other thing that we do is, I guess, adapting a technique that's often used in face-to-face for people who perhaps have higher levels of risk generally or perhaps have things like complex trauma where things may be quite unpredictable. And that's to ensure that we have a very clear um, session structure. Um, so we usually work quite explicitly on the transitions into and out of the therapy. We also set up a care plan with every client um, and that's really not just around emergency support, um, but really moving right back into how they manage self-soothing, how will they cope um, or what will they do uh, perhaps if they're distressed during a session. And we also ensure that everybody gives us um, one or preferably two people and all the contact details of one or two people uh, in their local area that we would be able to call 
uh, for example, if we're concerned about somebody in a session and we're not able to contact them, perhaps if they drop out or leave the session and uh, they, they're not answering their phone, uh, which we would normally yeah, we would normally contact, contact people by phone if they drop out of sessions. If we're not able to and they've left in a distressed state or we're concerned about them, uh, we would uh, you know, have, have permission to contact these other people in their local area who could then go and assist them mm. and just check that they're okay. Okay, and and Ross, any other contingency strategies that you might put in place? Uh, look, nothing really beyond what Julia said. Um, at Origin, we're lucky enough that our referral process in New South Wales involves a face-to-face setting anyway, so we've got eyes on those young people that are referred. I think it's quite different if you're offering digital only, uh, so just that idea of having your backup contacts or parental permission, if we're talking about under 16s, just so that you've got some kind of connection back to someone that is there close to them. Mm. Uh, if you don't have that and it's a more of a crisis model, um, just really helping clients understand that if and when you need to, emergency services will be your first port of call for them. Um, So, I know that's a fairly rare thing for many services uh, that work online. Uh, At least at Origin, we find that young people really understand those boundaries and limitations um, to our service that we describe when they onboard, Mm. as Julia's describing. And young people typically get that, like they don't bring a crisis to somewhere that's not equipped for a crisis. And yeah, it's really interesting. I think people often get quite nervous about that idea that it's going to be the Wild West or it's going to be risk presentation after risk presentation, but um, young people seem to really understand what belongs where um, Mm. and the fact that there are certain services that are built for crisis like Lifeline or Kids Helpline. It sounds like a lot of what you're saying is around setting a therapeutic frame from the start and being really clear in your communication. And I imagine that that's uh, a little bit more straightforward if you have a service model that's explicitly set up for it. What about situations uh, which happened for a lot of practitioners when the COVID pandemic started, which was that you were operating in a face-to-face model and then all of a sudden (laughs) everything's turned upside down and you're suddenly operating in a telehealth service and your clients are maybe not, you know, maybe taking the telehealth option because it was a necessity, not because it was a preference. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's necessary in that situation to sort of reset a frame and have a really frank discussion at the start of that transition? Absolutely. I think uh, that's critical. And although the space is co-created, we still need to, I think, provide some um, direction and coaching around that. I think maintaining some basic boundaries um, is, is really important. For example, I think really supporting the person to find a place in their home if they're logging in from home Um which is private, uh, et cetera, making sure that other people aren't necessarily coming in and out of the room. I think also just being mindful that when we're talking to people at home, that may be their safe space. So also having quite frank discussions about if there's um, distressing material that may be dealt with in sessions, how might that impact their their feeling about where they are and uh, perhaps to think about um, alternatives if necessary. I really... um, you know, coming back to the sort of idea of that space that we've always created based on Freud's model, <laughs> I think there's some ele- elements of that we want to maintain. So we want to make sure that this is a separate space to other spaces. Um, obviously, when people are talking through 
um, a, a, a computer. They may have just come out of a meeting. Sometimes people want to go from a work meeting into a therapy session straight back into a work meeting or, you know, an argument with their parents or mm. uh, some other personal things. So we really want to create this to be uh, something that's different. And we can do that by, for example, using professional um, software so that we're not using Zoom or the same thing that, that people are using for work or for other purposes and also helping them create spaces at home. Some people... Um, being in the car in the garage is a good option <laughs> um, if, they, if they don't have a space at home that they're able to use. Going out in public and, you know, sort of phoning in as they're walking around or um, being perhaps in, in a coffee shop, those things uh, can be more tricky. So, mm. um, I've certainly had numerous sessions when the client has been dialing in from the car and it, uh, it can make for an interesting therapy session. Uh, it's also interesting. I was, I was having a conversation with some colleagues the other day around how often we think about this stuff around setting a therapeutic frame and setting up treatment as sort of the, the preamble towards, you know, the, the real stuff or the getting into the real core issues. But I think sometimes it's helpful to reframe that as around that this is actually a really important part of the process and can actually help the client um, with really valuable skills that will be helpful in their therapeutic journey. I agree. And I, I think we have to, um, well, I, I'm very keen on uh, talking about the transition, as I said, not just at the beginning of the session into the main sort of body and then out again, but even before and after the session. Mm. So that if people are coming to see us face to face, they might get a train and walk through. So there's kind of a preparation period Buffer. when they're coming to the office yeah and then when they leave and a lot of processing happens in those times um, so we would encourage people to think about what they might do before the session what they might do after whether that's catching up with someone just for a walk or mm. a bit of self-care so that we're we're building that in and as you say it kind of becomes part of the whole process you mentioned that sometimes things can get tricky when clients are maybe walking around or in a cafe. That was actually one of my next questions, which is that sometimes clients might feel that telehealth is a little bit more flexible. So, you know, they might answer your call when they're at the shops or a cafe, or they might be sitting in the living room and family members are walking past in the background. What advice would you give to practitioners who find themselves in this situation? I think it depends on the um, service model again, and there's maybe some service models where that would be appropriate um, mm. and also what you're trying to do. But I guess uh, for our practice, which is uh, clinical psychology assessment and treatment, we would want, we would really encourage and ensure that there, there is a space that is the therapeutic space. Um, if there's not, then we would work with people to perhaps find a, a service that suited their needs mm. better. Yep. Okay. Ross, what would you do in that situation? Well, yeah, look, it's really interesting, particularly with a cohort of clients that are 26 and under, you mm. know, like it's this idea of consistency um, is inconsistent, let's just say. <laughs> uh, you don't quite know when a young person's going to be around for or where a young person's going to be for a, for a scheduled session. Um, certain models can accommodate that, like Julia's talking about. So uh, I know at Origin we can do direct messaging via our platform to young people to really reach them where, wherever they're at, and that's quite low impact. And I've seen examples of young people reading our resources on the train and messaging our support workers and peer workers on, from the train just in that really low-level maintenance way. 
When it comes to actual sessions, I think that um, what Julia said was really on the money and I'd encourage anyone who's working in this digital space as a new space for them to really get in the routine of asking people about their space in the first five minutes of the session. So just every time asking, is anyone else at home today? Um, can anyone hear our conversation today? Um, just because you can't take that for granted. It might have been true that it was private for two sessions and you're on your third, but you still need to ask just in case, say, the kids are at home that day and they couldn't have, you know, they didn't go to school for some reason or whatever that happens to be. So it can't hurt to get into the routine of really checking that stuff. Um, and also to um, to back up what Julie is saying around making it feel special and different for people as compared to their, their daily routine. I guess sometimes that isn't possible for people, but if we as clinicians can really build in a bit of a buffer towards the beginning and end of the sessions to help people walk their way through or even a grounding process of getting back to their life, um, that replicates a bit of, you know, what you'd normally um, experience when it comes to traveling to and from your appointment. Mm. Yep. Okay. Fantastic. Something that practitioners often talk about is the difficulty with engaging uh, children or adolescents in particular via telehealth. Julia, what do you think works with these age groups to keep them engaged? Well, first of all, I have to confess I um, don't often work with very young children, uh, but I've had a chat with a few colleagues as this question does often come up. Uh, and uh, I do have some some suggestions that have been offered by child psychologists. So I think uh, working with the parents as co-therapists um, uh, can be very important. And so they can help with, I guess, setting up uh, the therapeutic space. And that may be a, a particular rug that's rolled out or a particular sort of part of the house. So they may be able to sort of help help set that space initially. And also um, act as uh, supports around maintaining appropriate boundaries. So, for example, if the child tends to um, disappear, uh, the therapist can work with the parent as a co-therapist and, and, and perhaps coach them about how they may bring them back um, into the session. The other thing that um, my colleagues have suggested is that uh, really trying to use a lot of um, methods to maintain their attention. So that could involve um, having physical breaks, so you perhaps get them dancing or singing <laughs> if they're starting to get restless, uh, if you're working on things such as, um, I guess, mindfulness or grounding techniques, actually having the child go off and find objects um, rather than just talking about them. And I guess just um, being open to switching switching modes quite quickly if needed. Mm. The other thing that uh, apparently has happened is I, I think particularly from um, colleagues in the play therapy world is there's a lot of wonderful uh, online versions of all kinds of techniques and rapport build, building games and, and all, all of that kind of thing as well. Mm. So um, I, I think uh, people can switch uh, from the face-to-face -face on, on the telehealth, um, or switch from interacting directly with the person on the telehealth session, perhaps bring in very short videos um, or, or some of these other online things as well. So I think it's about being creative and planning ahead. Mm -hmm. And being uh, quick and responsive, it sounds like, and, and maybe having <laughs> a few things in your mind that might be helpful if you find their attention is waning or they're, you know, looking yep. at their phone a lot. <laughs> Yeah. Yep. Ross, do you have anything to add to that one? Uh, look, 
Uh, I think Julie's on the money with a lot of uh, what's been described there. Uh, things like onlinesandtray.com are, is one example of what Julie is talking about, but there's plenty of others. Um, YouTube is your friend. There's plenty of short videos that you, you should probably um, – create a small playlist of uh, mm. to have ready to go if and when you need them, particularly with younger people. Um, I, I Hats off to people who work in that um, therapeutic space with people who are under 12. That's a really interesting <laughs> setting that I'm not super familiar with either, but developmental appropriateness is what it's all about, right? And, um, and I don't know many um, adults, let alone teenagers or children that could do a talking therapy session for an hour um, without knowing knowing uh, what that looks like or how that's going to work for them. So I think um, if you're working with teenagers and below in that sort of therapeutic setting, a 20-minute session might be okay. Mm. Um, it might be fine to say, uh, let's wind up now, but do you want to have a look at these resources before we meet next week or the week after? Um, because young people uh, can find support for themselves in uh, interesting spaces online um, and it could be that that's what kicks off your session the week after. You know, mm -hmm. how did you go when you looked at these videos or when you engaged in this community? So, yeah, there's plenty of ways to do blended care, I think, with young people um, using some online resources you don't have to create yourself. Yes, I think there are plenty available uh, that maybe we don't need to spend endless hours creating them in a Word document or whatever the new version of Paint is. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about digital mental health interventions. Uh, Ross, I might start with you. Sure. What are digital mental health interventions <laughs> and what do they actually involve? Yeah, and so... A lot of this is evolving, a lot of this is changing, a lot of what we consider to be digital interventions um, uh, are things that we're pretty familiar with, but then there are other things that have emerged in the last few years that we just didn't have in our toolkits before. So a digital intervention can be anything from a Zoom hour-long conversation with someone in that traditional therapy model right through to a self-directed website where people can access uh, a step-by-step -step and evidence-based toolkit mm. based on whatever their symptomology happens to be. So I know there are services like MindSpot around the place in Australia and a whole bunch of others that really do specialise in this idea of self-directed care. Mm. Um, and really in the middle there, we've got all sorts of things. We've got phone calls uh, as the most traditional digital mental health intervention um, that's yeah. been with us for decades. Uh, but increasingly, there are services that have chatbots and um, real life chat and uh, all sorts of other digital interventions that can occur there too, as well as the emergence of um, peer communities where um, people who people who are going through a mental health experience can talk to other people going through similar things and and really receive that that sort of less professional but equally important um, care to normalize what it is they're going through so I know um, most which is uh, the moderated online social uh, therapies platform that origin offer has a big um, element of peer support there. But there are plenty of others too. So SANE Australia has run uh, peer forums for many years, uh, reach out, uh, plenty of um, places that have this really interesting peer-based intervention model um, that the evidence tells us uh, can be equally as effective as professional support. Hmm, okay. 
Julia, do you have anything to add around what digital mental health interventions involve from your experience? Um, I think that Ross has covered it all beautifully. Um, just to, to, to also say, I think we're also moving to a point where we can uh, blend a lot of those different formats mm. as well. Uh, so we're giving much, able to give much more comprehensive support for people. Okay, so we know that uh, particularly for adolescents and young adults, many of them, as you've said, are very comfortable communicating via social media. Um, are there any interventions that sort of leverage this to provide digital mental health services? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And it, I think it's got to do with the ever-evolving way that young people use technology and and the fact that now, I look, I'd be surprised if anyone listening to this podcast didn't have uh, a smartphone and that really powerful ability to access um, all sorts of information at any time, you know. And so the, the idea of um, leveraging the way people are using technology, I think, is part of that cutting edge of emerging digital intervention. Mm. Um, so I've seen really uh, amazing things like YouTube channels, for instance, dedicated to videos that are short meditation uh, exercises or stories of lived experience uh, that people at the real beginning of their mental health journey can recognize themselves in, mm. you know. And so there's this really interesting idea that help seeking has changed. Uh, it's not simply presenting to a GP and asking for a mental health care plan anymore, even though really in the scheme of things, that's pretty new too. That's only 15 or so years old. Um, but, you know, in the world of young people, which is where Origin spends a lot of our time, we're constantly asking young people what we can do better to meet them on that technology level uh, that we can only hope to be playing catch up on because we're not young people. We're not the, the people that are using this daily in the way that they are, hourly, minutely, if that's even a word. So, yeah. And so what does something like a moderated online social media therapy actually look like in practice? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. It's... um. At least uh, at Origin and with most, what we have is a really flexible approach to letting young people choose what works for them. So if they just want to work their way through an online resource or read some therapy comics, which are really um, great and engaging for young people, that's great. If they want to be talking to their peers about what they're experiencing and and interestingly, what we hear from our user base is that part of the therapeutic benefit there for them is helping other young people. So it's not just receiving help, it's the ability to perceive themselves as of help to others and how powerful that is in a social uh, connectedness sense. Um, and then beyond that, we've got professional support too. So like between all of those sort of different approaches, Young people can come with, come up with what works for them, uh, and that's just what Origin offers. There's plenty of other similar services out there um, that um, offer a range of, of things, be that online groups where people talk or even websites that aren't mental health focused. Um, the amount of places people find support via TikTok or Twitch or these really emerging things that, uh, you know, I'm learning about daily, but uh, that young people just take for granted. Mm. It's it's really quite interesting. I think the other element of that is that uh, it really puts, uh, particularly for young people, I think, 
the person in the driver's seat. So through their peer support, they can also learn to learn about a whole range of different options. They can explore many different approaches to tackling mental health issues. So whereas before you might go to a professional who would then assess and decide what might be the best approach in collaboration with you, but now you are the person who can go out and make choices, have different types of therapy at different times or different types of um, support and intervention, as Ross is saying. So I think it's really shifted and opened up a lot more choice and for the person to have more agency. Which I think is potentially good and bad, right, Julia? You know, like mm. I, I think that that idea that we had traditional channels through to support worked for a certain amount of people in a really great way, you know. Uh, but then what I'm hoping technology will help us do is to provide services to people for whom that didn't work. Uh, so, what we know is that young men, for instance, do not access GPs uh, for that treatment in the same way that their female um, age-appropriate um, counterparts do. So, what can we do using technology to put help-seeking um, more creatively in front of those groups of people that feel like they're not interested in the traditional model? I'm, I'm really excited about that. Mm. And also, I think, how can we supplement traditional models? Because I think, for example, particularly around the peer support and being able to engage with others with similar experiences, that's a fantastic complement to, to therapy or, or other interventions as well. As we mentioned earlier in relation to telehealth, uh, a barrier that people often perceive is you know, the absence of face-to-face -face connection uh, with a practitioner and, and the challenges that that might bring in terms of the therapeutic relationship. And we know that a large portion of treatment effectiveness is about the relationship. So how do digital health interventions work with or, or work around this? Yeah, again, a great question. And I think zooming back to what we even mean by the relationship is an important mm. sort of consideration there. And I think there is some danger in trying to fully replicate the experience of having someone face-to-face. -face. Uh, and the way, uh, you know, when I'm sometimes training people to upskill from face-to-face -to, -face to digital is that I say to people, you're not learning a new language. It's kind of a dialect of a language you already know, you know. So there is information for you if you're doing a Zoom session that is somewhat adjacent to what you would receive from people in a face-to-face -face setting. So don't consider that you're going to be doing without any of that. Beyond that, and particularly for young people, um, I think it's a real mistake to overemphasize a face-to-face -face relationship as more real or more important than an online relationship. Um, when we talk to young people, they have people that they consider to be lifelong friends or very important in their lives that they will potentially never meet. Uh, that they only know from, say, an online gaming setting or from some kind of interaction with someone online via a Reddit thread or whatever it happens to be, that actually has the core components of a deep and intimate relationship. Mm. Um, so I think we are at risk of losing touch with the way people actually make connection these days and or... Um, saying one is more important than the other. And I just don't think that's how young people operate anymore. Julia, anything to add on that one? Yes. One of the things that fascinated me when I was working more in sort of online programs and things like that is uh, people actually do form relationships with or a sense of relationship with with these programs. And each one of them is is quite different. It might have similar content, but the people who've developed it have 
you know, sort of put a lot of thought into creating a certain ambiance. So I think it's not a all or nothing thing. I, I agree with Ross not that we shouldn't be overemphasizing the sort of model that's worked previously. But for example, there's there's some really really cute things. I've been recently tri- trialing Wobot, which is a little uh, small CBT type. Uh, artificial intelligence text bot and it's really got a great personality (laughs) i'm quite attached to it (laughs) got a great sense of humor kind of doesn't bother me too much so so yeah i i think we just need to be um, more open or sort of open uh, our ideas about what relationships actually can mean and what they can be Mm, we have a very traditional sense of what relationships look like right you know it's me as a practitioner with you as a client in a room you know with my pillows and with everything set up right how I like it and yeah maybe it's time for us to reorient ourselves and reframe what that actually means yeah and and potentially not fully like just Mm. to you know thank you for correcting me on that um, Julie because you're spot on like for some people face-to-face is still the thing that's going to work for them. Mm. You know, don't get me wrong. Technology is not um, the answer to all of these situations. There, Even for young people, um, there are a certain amount of um, uh, of that group that only want to do face-to-face because that is absolutely what works for them or mm. they don't want to interact with their peers online. They'd rather do that in a, in a real-life setting. That's fine. Don't get me wrong. But uh, the idea that technology can actually bridge some of the gaps to people that didn't have a choice in that space before um, and for whom face-to-face wouldn't work uh, and so they never sought any help at all. Like mm. that's, that's what's really changed in the last little while. And for me, again, just that idea of this massive um, also massive increase in the choices available to people. And I think that, you know, we know that uh, many mental health uh, issues can recur over time. So I think somebody might want to do face-to-face therapy at some point in their life, but at other times may choose some of these other options. So I think it's, yeah, it's really fantastic in terms of opening up a lot more diversity. Mm. And so just like we spoke about with telehealth, we spoke about some ways that you might want to modify things or put in contingency strategies in order to manage risk. How could you use digital mental health platforms to manage risk and, and how can practitioners who might be working in a blended model manage risk appropriately? Yeah, um, this is something that I guess all clinicians uh, think about when mm. it comes to that first meeting of someone and really figuring out where the edges are for them in terms of their mental health experience. And I guess the truth of the matter is, and particularly for young people, is that we never really know when risk is going to present itself. And so we need to be cautious around the idea that if someone is at some level of risk, they're too risky to help via digital services. Um Risk is quite normal for people that are in the early stages of help seeking, particularly if they don't really have good mental health literacy or even understand their own symptoms very much. Risk is something that comes along with that early interaction. And so, with services like most at Origin, we have a range of um, technology that helps us uh, pick up 
automatically if someone is posting into the community with risky language, for mm. instance. And so, um, our technology will flag that and it will put it in front of a clinician for a response. Um, yeah, okay. Or at the very least, if it happens quite late at night, which is an unusual thing for us, but if it does happen quite late at night, that post would not go live to the community until a clinician has seen it and reached back out to the person that made the post. And there's all sorts of technology around how we um, reach back out to the person to get them support at the time if they need it. So, referral through to crisis lines and things like that if there's if there's no staff around. And back to Julia's point around um, making sure that you've got good emergency contacts and people that you know um, that are actually in the worlds of folks who are experiencing some kind of risk um, is just that sort of last level fail safe when it comes to getting mm. people the support they need. But um, yeah, there's, there's an overdue conversation, I think, in the sector around what is risk and what do we mean by risk and are we being informed by us trying to diminish risk in our practice or are we actually meeting people where their genuine needs are and not being too afraid of risk because it's part of our work? Mm. Yeah, I think in that regard, uh, there's been some really helpful shifts more broadly in thinking about um, risk, particularly in relation to suicide in the mental health space. And I think uh, sort of the zero suicide approaches are really shifting us away from trying to predict risk in a way uh, and more towards really understanding what that person needs and how we can actually assist them with that. And I think there's some new models that are really helpful around that that really sit very well uh, with telehealth and digital mental health. And, and I guess that includes things like actually using uh, fairly evidence-based standardised ways of assessing uh, risk where possible. And particularly, I think, really important with um, remote delivery is if for some reason a person does need to um, explore other services that might be more suitable for them, to really work on warm referrals so that you can stay with that person and kind of keep in touch with them if they'd like you to, to make sure that they get connected. Mm -hmm. uh, we all know that mental health system can be really hard <laughs> to, to navigate so just really making sure that the referral that you've made it does land well with them once they've contacted it and if that doesn't work, helping them find what they really need and really, I guess, enacting the no wrong door type of idea of, of mental health service. Can you expand on what the no wrong door approach is a little bit, Julia? Uh, I think, that, well, the, the, the fundamental idea of that is that uh, whatever um, health service a person uh, approaches, they will be supported with respect and um, assisted. If, if that's not the right service to meet their needs, they will be assisted uh, to, to, to navigate the system and find, find the service that really does suit them better mm. rather than kind of saying, sorry, we don't see that kind of problem, you know, go here. See you <laughs> later. Mm, yeah, exactly. Okay. And so say that I am a mental health practitioner who's working in a rural area who – is keen on implementing maybe a hybrid model or, you know, integrating some sort of digital mental health interventions into my, you know, therapeutic structure, what would be your ma main pieces of advice to keep in mind? Yeah, um, 
As I sort of said earlier, I would say go for it. Um, You have the skills you need already. If you're working face-to-face, you have the skills you need to work digitally. It's just about adapting those skills to the (laughs) different space. Um, So don't feel like you need to go back and do training. You don't need to start again, although there are plenty of great professional um, sort of short courses you can do in this sort of space if if you really do feel like you'd you'd, um, need to brush up a bit on things like technology, for instance. But beyond that, um, I'd also say you don't have to do it alone. Um, The idea of all of these online resources being at your fingertips just as much as they're at your client's fingertips can help you as a practitioner have a, a bit of a toolkit ready to go if you've got people you're working with face-to-face who you know need specialty support in an area that you're not a specialist in. Mm. Chances are that there will be some kind of online service offering for them somewhere in the world, whether that's from eating disorders through to panic attacks or whatever it happens to be. There's lots of really interesting specialty resources around and available these days. And blending that, as Julia has been saying, into the way you deliver your service will just make the the experience of your work with clients um, Um, far more flexible, I think. Julia, what would be your main pieces of advice? I would applaud everything that Ross has said. Uh, I would add uh, perhaps to start, uh, if you're feeling a bit overwhelmed about the number of choices out there, to start small, perhaps start with one or two services that you want to sort of engage with and just sort of gradually build your confidence and your, your knowledge. The other thing I would really encourage people to do is really take advantage of the Australian government's um, investment in uh, digital mental health services Mm. over the last few decades. We're actually world leaders in what we provide and what we have publicly available. And so there's obviously organisations like Origin, as you've heard, that have a whole suite of digital type services. And so when you're engaging with with services like that or other Commonwealth-funded services, um, other sort of government-funded services, you have a degree of assurance around the quality and particularly things like data security, uh, clinician, or the clinical adequacy of things. So I think it can be very easy to kind of get excited about apps coming from here or there, but I think... Um, start with something at least that is um, Commonwealth funded or, or government funded. There's a whole heap of resources available on the com- government's Head to Health site, uh, so you can find those resources. Um, but yeah, just be a little cautious in the things that you use, but there's some really great options out there for you. It's an excellent point, Julia. The, the app store is probably not your starting place. <laughs> there are so many cowboy operations that come from who knows where promising, um, you know, these tools that are just as effective as the evidence-based services that uh, go through the proper channels. So, yes, Head to Health is an excellent starting place for that. Um, and just lifting the hood there a little bit. I know that the industry itself is starting to consider some of the registration requirements and um, things like getting certified to mm. offer um, is going to help us all navigate these these emerging systems a lot more easily, I think. Yeah, absolutely. We've talked about a lot today. We've covered a lot of ground in relation to telehealth and digital mental health. I know that I've learned a lot. Uh, Ross, I might start with you. If listeners were to take away one or two things from this episode, what would you want it to be? Yeah, look, I... I like 
um, people to consider um, these emerging technologies as at least part of the way we're all going to work in the future. So I think that this is just the early stages of the sector meeting the needs of consumers um, and the way people live these days. So don't be afraid of change, embrace change, uh, but do it at your own pace. You don't have to become a fully digital operator overnight, uh, but the idea of being flexible enough to meet your clients where they're at, I think is a, a happy side effect of this for all of us. Julia, what would you want to be the main takeaway from this episode? I think I would just encourage you to to, to enjoy it and um, really uh, make that switch, I think, to really co-creating the work that you do with clients. You, you're already doing that already, but this is just a new way to, to work together with your clients and hopefully you'll find that immensely enjoyable. Wonderful. Thank you both so much for joining us today. It has been a pleasure. That is all that we have time for. Uh, Ross and Julia are going to provide some extra resources for if you would like to dive into telehealth and digital health a little bit more, and you can access them through the learning platform, uh, which you can find through our website. Thank you for listening. I hope you found today's episode helpful. You'll find specially selected resources on this topic on our digital learning platform. To join the platform for free or to suggest questions or topics for further episodes, please visit our website, theperegrinecentre.com.au.